Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you for tuning in for yet another edition of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is a weekly show where we strive to expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, I have a really exciting guest today, but before I introduce my guest, I just want to remind you guys, I want to share an opportunity with you of how you can help to support the show, how you can help to support the Lions of Liberty podcast. You can do this in a very simple way by shopping, by doing your Amazon shopping through our affiliate link. Doing so costs nothing for you. But it does give us a small little kickback here at Lions of Liberty. You can do this. The link is at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Just click your link, shop through there. No cost to you, and you'll help us out just a tiny bit. We really do appreciate it. Second, this is the 33rd episode of Felony Friday. So you know that means you can find the show notes for today's show at lionsofliberty.com slash FF33. So be sure to check that out for links to everything we're going to talk about today. Today, I'm joined on Felony Friday by Diane Goldstein. Diane is a speaker and executive board member for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. She guest lectures on criminal justice and drug policy reform. Diane has also provided radio and television political commentary and is a contributor on multiple media outlets. Prior to joining LEAP, Diane was a 21-year member of law enforcement. She worked in various assignments, starting as a patrol officer and culminating as the first woman lieutenant for the city of Redondo Beach. Diane was one of the founders of the California Association of Hostage Negotiators, and she is a subject matter expert and trainer in crisis negotiations and the integration of verbal and physical tactics during critical incidents. As I said, Diane now works with LEAP. Um, we've had a, a past LEAP guest on, uh, Regina Huffnagel, back on way back on episode three. LEAP is a nonprofit organization made up of current and former members of law enforcement. And their goal is to speak out about the failures of existing drug policies. And LEAP has a stated goal of ending the war on drugs altogether. Diane, thank you so much for joining us on Felony Friday. You know what? Thank you so much for having me on it. You know, if it wasn't for radio shows and organizations like you guys is I don't think we would be as far along on not just drug policy reform, but criminal justice reform as well. Well, thank you so much. And I do agree. And that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I do this show. I know it's a, if I can help out in a small way, uh, I'm just doing what I can to advance the ball forward just a little bit. Before we get started, and our goal here today is to really talk about marijuana legalization, especially how it relates to California and some things on the ballot there. But before we get started talking about that, I wanted our audience to get an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and get to know, maybe start off first by talking about you spent 21 years as a police officer. Maybe you can share you know, what led you in the direction to want to get involved and serve in law enforcement. You know, I think... Most everybody that I know who has gotten involved in law enforcement has done so because they wanted to make a difference in their community. And, you know, for me, it was that as well as it was a place marker because I also wanted to be an attorney. And what ended up happening for me is that law enforcement got in the way. I fell in love with a profession that has profoundly been changed 
in the last, you know, 10, 15 years since I've retired. And, and it started happening even during my career because of the drug war. And so, you know, that really led me over to joining law enforcement against prohibition back in 2010 during the initial Proposition 19 campaign in California, which failed. But I truly believe to this day set the groundwork for all the changes across the nation relative to the issue of adult consumption marijuana and the many legalization ballots that we're continuing to see. You mentioned some things have have changed. Could you give an example of something that that really sticks out in your mind that's changed in law enforcement in the past 10 to 15 years? Sure. I think, you know, that the over-militarization of law enforcement is, you know, law enforcement, and trust me, you know, we've had a lot of warts and faults. But starting back in the 1980s, when I got hired as a police officer, you really saw a ramp up of the militarization of law enforcement with the over- enforcement of drug markets. And increasingly, every president tried to outdo previous presidents on being tough on crime and trying to eradicate drugs. And what we've continued to see, and we're now finally at a point where maybe some of that rhetoric is starting to abate, but it's still very problematic because what happened is, you know, the Lions of Liberty will appreciate this, is in trying to prevent drugs from coming into our country and trying to prevent people from consuming drugs and using drugs. In fact, we have whole caste swaths and violated people's constitutional rights. We subvert property rights through the use of civil asset forfeiture. We criminalize people for what should notably maybe be a public health strategy if not recognizing that, you know, is people have the ability to choose what they consume. And as long as they don't commit other criminal acts, it's not government's role to stop them from doing so. And so, you know, we continue to push this envelope of, you know, yes, drug use can be bad, but the drug war is much more harmful. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with that more. And, uh, you know, this is a a libertarian show, and I think most of our audience is is libertarian. And being a libertarian and really believing in the ideas of liberty, it doesn't mean that, you know, you want everyone to go out and do drugs or smoke pot or, you know, do harder drugs than that. I think that's sort of a misconception a lot of people have. They think libertarians are, you know, they just want to legalize marijuana to smoke it. But just like you said, it's not the role of the government to infringe on individuals' uh, rights. It's not the role for them to dictate what they can and cannot put inside their body. That's not to say that somebody should be ingesting drugs. It's just not to say that that's not the role of government. And from a utilitarian view, when the government and the state does do that, it makes the situation a lot worse and pushes it to the black market. I kind of wanted to pivot back to your career for a minute. You did serve 21 years as a police officer. I just was wondering... What was the moment or a moment, one of your top moments that you're most proud of, of the time you're serving two decades? You know, it's really interesting. It's, I think I've had a couple moments, really my favorite moments covered a four year stint as our first school resource officer. And, you know, it's very controversial again now when you see police officers in schools, because what has happened is we've pivoted what started out as kind of a community-based policing type of program. 
where I was in the school as part of staff trying to prevent kids from getting involved in the criminal justice system. And so an arrest would be the last thing we would ever do is, you know, we would look at wraparound community resources to try to get a kid to stay in school to deal with family issues. And so, you know, because of Facebook today, I have kids that I dealt with at Redondo Union High who sought me out as adults and said, I just want you to know how much I appreciated what you did in your four years at our high school. It meant a difference to me. And now I'm married. I have a PhD. I'm, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it happened to be. And so, you know, I think that that like anything else is we don't want to over police people. But there are times and ways where if law enforcement goes back to kind of like co-policing, working hand in hand with our communities, that it's not just law enforcement responsible for public safety. You know, in the school district, it was not just the students and the parents and the administrators, but we had one small piece to it and with the goal of not criminalizing our kids first and foremost. That is powerful. When you can look at an individual, you know, I don't know how many years, maybe 10 years past or or whatever, and, you know, they come back to you and say, you helped to turn my life around. To me, that's stories like that. We need more of that out there from police officers having that positive impact. I know it happens out there, but all you hear about are, you know, these uh, shootings or or other events like that, because that's what the media jumps on. That's what social media jumps on. And a lot of that is due to the drug laws. And a lot of that is due to these uh, revenue, you know, these laws that are gauged or aimed towards generating revenue. Um, But yeah, definitely. If law enforcement can pivot more towards helping people and more towards um, helping people who do have problems to get the help they need, then that's that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, Wanted to next ask you about. So obviously you've you've come to uh, support the end to marijuana prohibition. Is there a specific event that sticks out to you where this really changed in your mind? Because obviously, you know, signing up, serving 21 years as a law enforcement officer, you know, you were sworn to enforce the law. So you you had to enforce the law if somebody was consuming marijuana or something or they were uh, trying to sell it, you have to arrest them. So was was there something that that shifted that shifted uh, that mentality for you? Well, you know, it's real interesting because. You know, you talk about because I'm, I also want to pivot back to kind of the regulatory police model issues. So let's make certain that we touch on that. But I think one of the issues on very specifically around the marijuana laws, you know, I was a, a child of the 1970s in my high school days and I smoked pot in high school like probably 90 percent of my friends did. And then when I left high school, I stopped smoking pot, which is. of all our kids experience as they grow out of, you know, that experimental type age. And so when I got hired as a police officer at age 21, I didn't look at marijuana as this, you know, taboo, horrible, moralistic type of issue. And so I was able to really use my discretion when it came to running into kids who were using pot and if I could, you know, throw it away, counsel and release some, you know, when it came to people who were selling 
drugs, you know, it's much harder to have that type of discretion. But one of the issues in law enforcement, I think, is that we try to hire saints for law enforcement instead of people who have, you know, real world experience. And I'm not saying that we should hire people, you know, who are criminal in nature, but we also exclude people who maybe have a past that, like me, I mean, is I look at it now that if I probably got tried to get hired for law enforcement in the 1990s, late 1990s, 2000 or now, I may not have been hired. And so it is, I think we need to look at who we hire, not just based on, you know, the type of person they are, but their world experience, because that's a big part of the problem. I mean, you know, we're hiring people who have never worked with diversity, that have never met an African-American, and then we're sticking them in communities in order to help police them, and they don't know how. That's a really good point. Police officers being able to relate to the people they're interacting with, um, that's something that's definitely not brought up enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we have really changed the nature of policing and who we hire and from where. And yes, we have to have standards, but I mean, we need diverse, well-educated law enforcement agencies that are co-police with oversight from the community as well. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And, you know, it's, you know, agree or disagree. I think that you can be pro-law enforcement and pro-Black Lives Matter movement, you know, is supporting police accountability is not mutually exclusive. And so, you know, I think we need to completely rethink about what policing in America, what we should envision. And it's not the cops that should be in charge because we're just an arm of the citizens. You know, we need to have our community as people who are responsible for the direction and the oversight of our organizations as well. Couldn't agree with you more. Let's start talking about this uh, California ballot initiative, if we can. Proposition 64, I think it is. Yeah. So on, was it on July 1st, uh, the California Secretary of State announced that this bill, I guess it's called the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, AUMA is the acronym. I'm not going to try to say that as an acronym, but it's an initiative to legalize marijuana in the state, and it's now on the November ballot. So what specific changes does uh, Prop 64 make to marijuana prohibition? So, you know, it's complicated. It's, It's not the full legalization that I think that some people want, but what it does it reduces a tremendous amount of penalties or makes certain activities legal from a business model. And so what they did is, I think it's real interesting, is they took a look at what occurred in Colorado, what occurred in Washington, and other ballot initiatives. And they tried to come up with some gold standards that would maybe meet the ability for people who don't smoke marijuana or who don't want their kids to have access to marijuana to support it. And so there's a lot of really, really good things that I like about it. There's some things that I think can be changed, but the wording of the ballot initiative itself allows for legislative change. So for example, right now, the tax is at like 15%. 
But down the road, if that tax is too high, it can be reduced. The tax can never go up. So like if there's still criminal penalties that are left in place is legislation can change it and lower the penalties or completely decriminalize it, but they, it can't impose new penalties. So it creates, you know, kind of a, a standard for people to work off and to still be able to assess down the road on what's working, what's not, is there some tweaking that needs to be done? And so it's a, a great step in the right direction. One of the things that I really like about it, it has a component model that goes back to communities that have been impacted by disparities in law enforcement. So there's monies that will go back to communities of color, to you know job training programs, to start apprenticeship programs, it lowers the barrier of entry into the industry. You know, because right now, California medical marijuana regulations say that if you have been convicted of any felony drug convictions, you can't be a licensee. And so with this, it looks at, you know, maybe one of the reasons why all these people have convictions is because disparities in enforcement that in fact have occurred. So there's some really good strength about it relative to the issue of advertising to kids, you know, and and I'm pretty libertarian. And, you know, sometimes I struggle with, you know, what's the right constitutional balance. But I think we can all agree that we shouldn't be advertising or promoting marijuana use to kids. Definitely. Yeah. Just the same way I wouldn't want people advertising, you know, hard alcohol to children or, or cigarettes to children. I don't think that's necessarily something that would really happen, especially in today's culture where, you know, something can go viral so quickly. So, for example, if a magazine started or a, say a, a TV show started running ads for you know, advertising marijuana for children, I think that would be they would be outed pretty quickly. And Absolutely. I think the market would take care of it. But and I think there's also the federal regulations on broadcasting that would take care of it right now and wouldn't allow it either. But I think, you know, it, it's interesting when you start talking about valid advocacy or writing is what I've found in the last few years is valid initiatives are not written for the people who are necessarily in the industry. They're written for the average voter who may have some kind of fears about, you know, what's going to happen. And so, you know, I think that the most difficult part for me around this whole issue of marijuana in particular is the tax issue, you know, is we have seen that even with kind of the overtaxation of, you know, adult consumption uh, marijuana in Colorado and Washington, that has benefited those states, but it still has not, you know, it's, we're never going to eliminate an illicit market, but we could do more by finding that sweet spot that would further reduce the harms of the illicit markets in our community. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But first, I just wanted to make sure that, that I understand the, the actual law itself. From what I read, it seems that California's 21 and older are allowed to grow up to six plants but they can't transport more than an ounce or up to eight grams of extract. I don't know if that makes sense to me. Well, so they're allowed to grow more than an ounce, but they can't. What does that mean they can't transport an ounce? What they're trying to do is they're trying to prevent distribution out of the legal market. So one of the things in polling that has been done consistently across all the markets is that people want the ability to do home growth. 
So anybody is going to be allowed to grow six plants, but if you're going to take it out of, you know, you can't transplant a pound of pot in your car to go to a party. You know, you can transport an ounce, 28 grams, and then eight ounces of concentrate. So one of the things I think that is concerning for people is like that, you know, they kind of believe that that's going to open them up for more criminal penalties. And what I like to say is, you know, this is no different in the sense that if you have an open bottle of wine that, you know, you take to your local restaurant and you want to bring it home, they recork it. And in order for it to be legal, you have to put it in the trunk of your car. Mm -hmm. We just need to be smart about how we're going to be transporting. But that doesn't mean that, like, if you're engaged in the industry, that you're not going to be able to transport more than an ounce of marijuana. They're going to have distribution licenses. You know, this is just for personal use. So what you're talking about is literally that is just what the, the bottom line personal use statute is. Okay, just wanted to make sure that for our listeners that that was clear. I know another issue that's really important to our listeners, and we've talked about Prop 47 before on this show, and I think actually Prop 47 might be running out soon. So I I was curious to how, I know you had to like petition the court for Prop 47 in order to get your your drug offenses, get some relief if you were in jail on a nonviolent drug offense, or if you already served your time. You had to actually do something in order to get that relief. Is Prop 64, does it act, does it provide similar relief to Prop 47? It does, but without those time restrictions. So that's another very, very positive thing about Proposition 64. In fact, I was at a industry event yesterday and I was with um, a man who had been previously convicted and what he is looking forward to when it passes, and that's why he's supporting it, is to be able to expunge his criminal record because he was a cultivator who was actually, you know, operating and providing for patients under Prop 215. But because of the gray area of Prop 215, he ended up getting a criminal conviction on it. So, yes, so that's another very, very good thing about Prop 64. And that that was really based kind of like on the the Oregon statutes is why should we continue to punish people for something that is now legal? And in fact, we should, you know, and at least at the adult level, people are going to have to go in and request it. But any in the future, if you're an 18, you know, if you're under 18 and you get caught with marijuana and there's still some, you know, wobbler or misdemeanor or infraction, automatically when you're 18, it's automatically expunged off your record. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a very important aspect of this proposition. And that's something I look for. If, if you're going to make something legal, if you're going to decriminalize something, I think it just makes sense to go back and uh, retroactively make it the same for people. I mean, you, you can't give people their life back if, if they've been locked away, but at least you know, reduce their sentence or uh, take the felon label off of them if they've served their time so they're able to expunge it. I think that's really important. Yeah, interesting enough, I want your listeners to understand there's currently seven current criminal activities that this initiative will make completely legal. You know, that's the homegrown, the concentrate, you know, the transport less. And if you, you know, can home grow, because most people can't or won't, 
you can give away up to one ounce to your friends. And so you won't be criminalized for sharing, you know, your home grow if you happen to be one of those people that's kind of like a home brewer or, you know, a someone who makes wine at home and then gives it to their friends. Right. That's important to clarify. Yeah. I think it's really good and really important, especially for, you know, offenses by minors under the age of 18 is they won't be given a criminal monetary fine. The most that can happen to them is counseling, community service, or drug education. Okay. So that's another really good thing. So a question here, I know that a lot of, uh, a lot of police funding is tied to, you know, nonviolent drug arrests. There's certain you know, quotas that at the local level that, that are have to hit in order to get some federal funding. At least that's my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. How would any funding lost based on this proposition passing, not saying it has to be replaced, but is that something that, you know, do we have to worry about police escalating a, another area in order to uh, to replace the funding? You know, it's really interesting. That's one of the arguments that law enforcement is making against the proposition that they're going to lose money. And I think it's a specious argument because, and that's, I think, one of the larger issues when we start talking about total police reform. I don't believe that the federal government right now allocates what's called burn jag grant funding. And so, you know, it's not to say that we're not going to, that law enforcement won't be allowed to get that type of funding. But if in fact they do, it's going to have to be for illicit growth. So like, you know, let's say that you have people that are going to continue to operate in the underground market on a commercial level you know, is local law enforcement could still obtain marijuana eradication grant funding to go into areas and to cut down illegal growth. And so, you know, all this, I think, is what it's going to do. It's going to bring great clarity to law enforcement. So they're going to understand that the people that you need to be concerned with is the bad actors, not the people who are in the industry in a responsible way or the consumer who is responsibly growing or using marijuana. And so, you know, it from a money perspective, there is going to be funding that's going to go back towards compliance for law enforcement. And there's also going to be money that's going to be given to the California Highway Patrol to develop and enhance driving under the influence of drug training. So the, I think that the other thing that's really important in this initiative is that it does not have a per se limit in it. Is In California, we've been fighting a DUID, marijuana per se level, for years because not just the activists and consumers, but people in law enforcement and, and defense attorneys all understand that a per se limit is unconstitutional and it is much different than someone who's driving under the influence of alcohol and that if you put a per se limit in it, what it would do is it could wrap up potentially innocent people into the criminal justice system and we want to avoid that as much as we can. But there's also, I think, enhanced training that is available that law enforcement doesn't necessarily do as much as they should you know, there's this great fear of, oh, my God, marijuana is going to be legal. We're going to have, you know, blood on our highways. And that's not true. 
you know, in California, law enforcement has complained since 1996 that we've had de facto legalization. And what you've seen, if you go back to National Highway Transportation Safety Administration uh, stats and you look at the mileage death rate on how they determine what states are the most safe, California's mileage death rate has dropped like from 1.46 for every 100 million miles driven or down to 0.92. And so, you know, I don't believe that our highways are going to be any more dangerous, but I also think that we need to engage in public education campaign to ensure that people understand is just because marijuana is legal, you still have a responsibility not to drive under the influence. Absolutely. And I I think the public education is especially important because I've read many articles out of Colorado talking about, you know, the number of drivers who were in accidents testing positive for marijuana going up without it being explained that, you know, they could have smoked marijuana a week or two weeks before and it's still showing up in their system. So, you know, correlation does not always equal causation. It's just really just a consequence of it being legal. Of course, it's legal. More people are going to have it in their system. It doesn't mean that it caused the accident. It doesn't mean they were high at the, at the time of the traffic incident. So I think it's really just a, a blatant misunderstanding of the drug that, that needs to be corrected. And I think it's not just a misunderstanding. It's a deliberate mischaracterization by law enforcement and people who oppose it. Because that's one of their big taglines is, you know, the, the things that they're screaming about right now is that the potential for DUID, that there are people who've been previously convicted of, you know, selling marijuana that may be allowed to get a license, which is also mischaracterization of what the bill actually does, because what it states is that can't be the sole exclusion. But there are many other reasons why people won't be allowed licenses. And ultimately, this proposition also relegates local control. So you could get a state license but be denied a license in the city that you want to operate in. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, but, but that's no different than what we do right now with alcohol or adult entertainment or other land use issues. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I mean, overall, the proposition, I can't argue with it. It is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And we have to support steps in the right direction, steps that keep nonviolent people from spending time behind bars. So that's Correct. that's the way I look at this as a whole. You know, there's a, a lot more questions and other stuff that I would uh, like to talk about, but we're running out of time and our listeners might have some questions as well. So I wanted to ask you if there's a way for our listeners to reach out to you, to contact you or to contact Leap to ask any questions or how they can even get involved and help Leap. Well, you can go to our website at www.leap.cc And probably the best way to get us uh, or to get us in front of you is to book one of our speakers at a business Rotary Club setting, you know, a a college, a school, you know, whatever type of educational environment that your listeners may be involved in. I do plenty of libertarian presentations. So that's a very, very good way to get to us. You can reach us at info at leap.cc if you want to personally contact me. I'm at diane.goldstein at leap.cc. But I think there's a lot of very important things, even though this isn't, you know, no legislation is perfect. And in a, a free society, I think we just need to continue to move forward to 
lessening the involvement of law enforcement in people's personal lives. And this is one small step in getting us there. I definitely agree with you. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with the Felony Friday audience, Diane. Thank you. It's always great to have another member of the LEAP organization on, and Diane did not disappoint today. Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, always great guests. They're always so educated, and they know the issues inside and out. And as Diane said, and as I agree with, this law is not perfect. I'm not saying it's perfect. She's not saying it's perfect. We should be clear that this is a step in the right direction. This is a step towards liberty. Certainly some pure libertarians out there, maybe some anarchist libertarians that will oppose this proposition or that just won't go out and vote for it. They won't advocate for it because it doesn't go far enough, because it doesn't remove the state entirely from the drug trade, does not make it a pure free market. And it doesn't. I'm not arguing that. It doesn't make it a pure free market. But the way that I look at this is it removes the government to a degree. It doesn't fully remove the government. It reduces the amount of individuals that are going to be spending time behind bars for a nonviolent crime. And that is a step towards liberty. Just imagine the impacts of that. Imagine the impacts of one person. In a society, and this hasn't been passed yet, let's hope, it, let's hope it does get passed, but in a society where somebody spends time behind bars for selling some marijuana or consuming some marijuana, so they spend 5, 10, 15 years behind bars, imagine the impact on their family, the ramifications, the exponential ramifications, and now imagine if that person doesn't spend time behind bars. Imagine if they're able to start a family, or they're able to be with their family, they're able to provide for their family. The impacts are truly exponential and can really change our society for the better. So that is why I really want to encourage anybody in California to not only support this legislation, but to actively go out and get other people to sign on for it too. Because as it doesn't go far enough, I agree with you, but it is a step towards liberty and I'll take it. I'll take it every day of the week. We'll keep marching towards liberty every single day. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Just want to remind you to please follow the Lions of Liberty on Facebook and on Twitter to join our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can do that by going on Facebook, type in Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar. It'll pop up and we will get you approved once you join. Uh, We do have three shows here on Lions of Liberty every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We have our new show, Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood, which hosted by Brian McWilliams, which has been a hit And we have Mark Clare, who does interviews, sometimes on Monday, sometimes on Wednesday, always bringing great people on to talk about the ideas of liberty, uh, at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. You can contact me via email, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. If you just happen to stumble upon this show today, please make your way over to the podcast archive, lionsofliberty.com slash archive. And you can find there, you can find a link to click on the Felony Friday Archive, or you can go directly to the Felony Friday Archive at felonyfriday.com and check that out. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.